How many of you uh, wrestled back in gym? Anybody that had you wrestle back in gym? How many of you did wrestling anyhow? Well, I got a bunch of here. That's great, I guess. So I did not fare very well because I really didn't know anything about it. So the gym teacher said, you know, we're going to wrestle and there's these different moves and I don't know, I'm trying to figure out the moves and by that time I'm pinned. So that was the end of my wrestling days. <laughs> um, but I say that, just a little bit of humor, but um, I want to ask you how you picture the Christian life. You know, I think the world out there thinks the, of the Christian life as uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, kind of weak and passive, and we smile and we're nice people. But you got to read the Bible to find out what the Christian life really is. And that's why we're going through the Bible verse by verse, and we're in Ephesians 6, and we're in this passage, verses 10 and following, but especially verses 10 to about 20. So if you want to open up your Bible to that, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Um, no matter what people think about the Christian life, we need to know what the Bible says about the Christian life. And the other thing you I need to do is, when we see what the Christian life is about in the Bible, then you and I have to look and say, is that how my Christian life is? Is my life in this world anything like the picture the Bible gives me of life in this world? So let's read what we've been reading through, and we're going to take another look at this passage, especially the beginning of it, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to about 12. I want to read right now. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We ordinarily call somebody who puts on armor and carries weapons a warrior. That is the picture of a Christian. We are warriors, not wusses. We are warriors. We're in a fight. We're in a battle. We've learned about that now, looking at verses uh, 11 and especially 12, the principalities and powers and so on and so forth. Now I want to key on the word wrestle here. Now, be careful, because at first sight, you might read this and say, we don't wrestle. Look at verse, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But you would be wrong, because we do. It says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principalities and powers, etc. So we do wrestle. The word wrestle applies to us. Spiritual warfare for the believer is life in this world until you die. You may not like it. I don't find it particularly encouraging in one sense because what we're up against. But in the other sense, if this is the real world that we, real world that we live in, we ought to expect it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. It shouldn't be a surprise to me. And look, it says we wrestle. It doesn't say the apostles wrestle. 
It doesn't say the elders wrestle or highly trained, specially equipped Christians wrestle. No, it says we wrestle. That's you, that's me. And this word wrestle, which applies to every believer, no matter who you are, as long as you're a believer, you're in the battle, you're in the war. The word wrestle here was used of hand-to-hand combat and especially of wrestling. So it's correctly translated here, we wrestle. Now, as you know, wrestling is an intense struggle. A literal wrestling match involves very close personal and physical contact. You can literally smell your opponent's strain and sweat. And sometimes there's even bloody contact. I'm talking about real wrestling here. And that's the word Paul uses. He knows that's what the word means. He uses it on purpose to describe what it is that you and I are all about and what God's will is for you and for me. Because God knows this world better than anybody. He can see all those supernatural entities arrayed against us that we can't see every once in a while. There is something we think, oh, there they go. Or we'll read what we read in Daniel, right? And I want you to understand, the devil does not fight clean. It's hard enough to get two wrestlers to fight clean. But we're talking about the devil. We're talking about demons. And they're not going to fight clean. And that's why right off the bat in verse 10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then God says, I've got some armor for you. And we're going to be looking at how we do this battling, how we do this wrestling as we look at the at the, at the armor, but I want to key again on this word wrestle. Now, this wrestling is not new. It began very, very long ago, actually, in the garden. So let's take a look at that, Genesis 3.15. Now, this is probably the second or third time or so we've looked at this verse in connection with spiritual warfare. So you can see how important this verse is in what we're learning, Genesis 3.15. So we begin with creation, Genesis 1, and then the zoom of creation, man in the garden, and then the woman. And and God says, I make you in my image, I put you in charge of this garden to tend and keep it, and it's a perfect world with two perfect human beings in perfect fellowship with the perfect God. And a stranger comes in, and Adam, instead of driving him out of the garden, immediately starts listening to this serpent talk to his wife. And the trouble's already in the garden. The world's already fallen because this serpent's already fallen. The devil was an angel who fell, turned against God, took a bunch with him. And then Adam eats and trouble starts big time. The world has fallen, we're all conceived in sin, born in sin, and we're helpless and we're hopeless unless God decides to come to our rescue. And of course he does, because of Christ. But look at Genesis 3, 15. So God begins to pronounce curses on each of the occupants of the garden, the serpent, the woman, and the man. So take a look at what he says to the serpent in Genesis 3, 15. I, says God, will put enmity, hostility, war between you, serpent, and the woman. Remember what we've said. The woman 
When you step back and take a look at the symbolism and imagery in the Bible, the woman begins to stand for the people of God, the church, the bride of Christ. And before that, Israel was Jehovah's wife, right? Could be referred to. So he says, I will put hostility, enmity, war between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed, Satan, and her seed, the woman's seed. He... The woman's seed shall bruise your serpent head, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, right there at the very end, you see the war very clearly. There's a war between the serpent and the seed of the woman who happens to be Jesus Christ. But it's in there in that word enmity or hostility that's being used between the serpent and the woman. And his seed, which would be unbelievers, and her seed, which would be believers. And that is largely the history of the world that we live in. One of the most fascinating subjects I ever studied was in seminary, we studied church history. And I realized that history can be viewed from many different angles, but the most accurate view is to view it from the angle of what God is doing in this world through Christ and his people, and what the enemy's doing in this world and his people. And you can look at the whole history of humankind that way. And then there's another way of looking at it, and it's called biblical theology, which is probably my favorite study of the Bible, and that is to take a look, tracing, uh, and we're, we're doing a lot of it in these sermons, but tracing what God is doing from the very beginning in Christ and how the whole movement of the biblical revelation, the histories that are in the Bible, are moving toward the final victory of Jesus Christ and the new heavens and the new earth being established. So you can read that in Revelation 21 and 22. But do you see what I'm saying here? The wrestling, the war began early on. Do you see that? Right here. So this war began very early on from the very beginning. And so God, in this way, announces war. There will be war throughout the history of humankind until Christ finishes his work and comes back. Now, I want to also emphasize something else. Jesus has already won the victory. Because when you read Ephesians 6.12 and you see principalities and powers and powerful demons and unclean spirits, who am I? To stand against them, not to mention the devil himself, but you and I need to believe that the victory has already been won. And it's on that basis, our Lord and our Savior, who not only lives there at the right hand of God, but lives here, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Remember, we read that, we studied that in Ephesians 3 earlier. That is the victory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Because the end is, has been decided. Remember what it says back here? You will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise or crush his heel. Remember that? That already took place. You know that? It was at the cross. Just like we've, we've been singing here today. So take a look at um, a couple places on this. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. I want to just mention these verses and show them to you so that you can look at them later when you get a chance, but to prove the point. So in Romans 5, verse 6, 
he says, for when we were still without strength. In other words, mankind had fallen in Adam and Eve, had no strength, completely hopeless and helpless. For when we were still without strength, in due time, which also could be translated as at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were hopeless and helpless, Jesus came to our rescue. That's what that means. He died for the ungodly. And when it says in due time or at the right time, it means according to God's timetable. And so the whole sweep of biblical history is according to God's plan all the way through. And then Christ comes and he completes his work and wins the victory. So the serpent's head was crushed. Now take a look also at Galatians 4, a little further on, also written by Paul. Paul had a keen sense of where he was in the timetable of God's history. And, and God gave Paul many opportunities and inspired him to write much about this for us. So we see a few places where he has written. So Galatians 4, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, that's similar to at the right time, according to God's timetable, when things are going to happen, Jesus Christ came. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, there it is, see, the seed of the woman, born under the law, what's that mean? It means that Jesus was required to fulfill the Mosaic law in every detail because you and I all sin, break the law, fall short of the glory of God. Jesus the Son fulfills God's will perfectly and with joy. He says, it pleases me to fulfill my Father's will. Now you and I, sometimes we do what's right, but we sort of don't want to. Well, I'd rather do what's right than what's going to happen if I don't do what's right. Well, that's obedience, but it's not very joyful, and it's not very honorable, but Jesus loved to serve as God. And then it says, to redeem those who were under the law. We talked about he bore the wrath. He paid for our sins. To redeem those who were under the law, that's us, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, Adam and Eve lost their sonship in the garden. Jesus comes to get us back our sonship so we'd be adopted into God's family and totally and fully reconciled to God as our Father forever, for endless ages, right? So take a look also at Hebrews chapter uh, 2. Now this is not Paul, but Paul obviously is not going to be the only one who knows about this in the inspired scriptures, but Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Now, what's, what's that mean? You and I are human. So that means God the Son took on human nature in order to provide for our salvation. That's what it means. That, purpose clause, through death he, the Son of God, might destroy him who had the power of death that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So we don't have to be afraid of dying. If you trust in Christ, death is the result of sin. God didn't make a world and say, now I'm going to let you live 70 or 80 years and I'm going to kill you. 
Death is a result of sin. So now that Christ has died and paid for our sins, we are not going to die. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, our body waits for the great day of resurrection when Christ will return and we'll be raised up to live in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever, endless ages. So that's what that's saying. So the devil goes around trying to get people to hurry up and get everything done before they die. And we have peace. We have joy. We have confidence and assurance. So I'm not going to die. And God will give you all the time that you need to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. Just be faithful. And God will take care of things. So we can walk through life, not in a panic, not in fear and anxiety. So remember that when you start getting tempted to fear and anxiety. And then another one is 1 John 3.8. I probably shouldn't go through all these verses for the sake of time, but I think we can do it here. 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Another great, great verse that talks about Jesus has already finished his work and accomplished your victory and my victory, our victory by his victory. See, we died with Christ and we were raised together with Christ. So his victory is our victory. So 1 John 3, verse 8, he says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So one day, the only work that will matter throughout all eternity is Jesus Christ, the Lamb upon the throne. And we will continue to see the marks in his hands, the marks in his feet, and in his side, which will be everlasting reminders of who he is, what he did, and that we are safe and secure forevermore. That's what's going to happen. Now, one other place I want you to see. I leave this for last because it's, one of, to me, one of the most exciting uh, scriptures on this in the Bible. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, one of the reasons why this is so exciting to me is because immediately after Christ returns to, to heaven, God pours out the Holy Spirit. Remember, John baptized with water, and he said, there's one coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's the day of Pentecost. And so here comes the Holy Spirit on those first believers, and Jerusalem is, an up and a, is in an uproar, and they all come to find out what's going on, and God raises Peter up to preach. And this is what Peter preaches. This is just a little bit of the sermon. But look at Acts chapter 2 here and then verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Did you see verse 23? Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God's timetable, God's plan, at the right time, in due time, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, and he did his work and finished it for us. It says it all over the place in the New Testament. In fact, at the nursing home, I'm going to be in John chapter 17 a little bit later on today. And it says, uh, now the hour has come for you, for me, 
your son, Father, to glorify you. The hour has come. And he knew, this is it. I'm going to the cross now. All through the Gospel of John, he says, my hour is not yet. My hour is not yet. John 17, my hour has come. Now I'm gone. Because it was a precise moment when God planned for Jesus to die on the cross. And that's why you know this is not fabricated. It's not made up. It's not myth. It's not allegory. It's for real. It's history. Because God, the Lord of history, remember his story? History is his story. And it all works out according to his plan. That's why he also promises you and me to work everything together for good for those of you who love God and are called according to his purpose. A lot of truth comes out when you're, when you're studying what Christ did for us. So the Christian life is warfare. It is constant and it's incessant. It's what you could call a battle royal. It will take place your whole life long. You can't go on vacation for a week or two and leave the war. I wish. You have to wait for the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I want you to see something and make this point and then finish. In a sense, we're reading Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, and it seems that there's not a hint of spiritual warfare all the way through. And you hit Ephesians 6, and I don't know about you, but it strikes me this way. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Put on the whole armor of God. What? Where's that coming from? And because you wrestle against demons. And you think, did Paul like, take a break from writing the letter and then come back and he was in a whole different mood and a whole different mind? No. You and I have to understand this spiritual warfare is not in a separate category outside of ordinary life. It is ordinary life. It's life that you live here in the world. So chapter 4, what does he talk about? Church unity. What does he talk about? Not being driven and tossed and, and, and fooled by the liars and the, and the heretics out there. And the cults and the cultists out there. In chapter 5, what does it talk to? Almost the whole chapter is devoted about, we studied it. What happened to you? Were you here? Marriage. You say, marriage isn't spiritual warfare. Oh, no. What about your marriage? It is spiritual warfare. Then he talks about family. Children, obey your parents. And he says, fathers, bring up your children. What's going on here is Paul is saying, in your daily, ordinary lives, that's where it's taking place. Yes, demons are after you. Yes, demons are trying to influence you. It's not just the news media. It's not just gov the government and politics and sat Satan worshipers and witchcraft. It's all through life. It's how you live your life. No wonder Jesus, as I've said before, teaches us at the end of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, the evil one. Because living in this world, you're living in enemy territory. We are the light, but all around us is darkness. You once were darkness, this book says, but now you are light in the Lord. So I want you to realize whether it's our relationships in the church, our relationships in the home, our marriages, our families, in the workplace, wherever we are, that's where the battle is taking place. Spiritual warfare is not limited to casting out demons. You understand? Very important that you and I know this. So the Christian life is a wrestling match. That means it's not easy. 
Have you found it to be really easy? Serious Christians know that life is not easy. We're tempted. We're tempted from within, the lust of the flesh. We're tempted from without, the lust of the eyes. And we've got the same battles with our pride, the pride of life. And you and I are in a battle, spiritual warfare, day in and day out. So have you ever watched a wrestling match? Or like I said, have you ever been in one for about two seconds like I was? What happens in a wrestling match when you stop wrestling? You are immediately pinned and you lose. I wonder if that doesn't describe a number of lives in the Christian church today. We forgot we're wrestling. And as soon as we forgot, we stopped wrestling, we got pinned, and we don't even know it. Think about it. Maybe it's a bad habit you've learned to live with and you can't do without. You stop wrestling. Maybe it's a difficult relationship, someone at work. Maybe it's in your marriage, dare I say it. Maybe it's a problem from years ago, and it's got you pinned, and you've stopped wrestling. You maybe no longer even struggle with it or even pray about it. Get back in the ring. Get off the mat and start fighting. Start battling. Don't give up. Don't give in. Maybe it's fear. A lot of us, we struggle with fear or anger. A lot of us, we struggle with getting angry when we shouldn't get angry or doubt or disappointment. Something goes wrong and poof, we lose the wind out of our sails and we're adrift. Or maybe it's an area of sin that has mastered you and God is calling you to master it. Wrestle. Get up off the mat. Maybe you've given in somewhere and you and God are the only ones who know about it. Get off the mat. Get back in the fight. Get help if you need it, certainly. But every day we're in this wrestling match. And we're fighting. We're battling, not in our own strength, but in his strength, strengthening us and making choices and decisions and fighting. So before we take the Lord's Supper, let me ask you, are you a wrestler? Doesn't mean you always win every match, right? It'd be foolish for any preacher or counselor to say that. Sometimes we'll get pinned, but gets who gets us right back up off the mat. Our God is a loving God, a forgiving God, and he's for us. And when we blow it, he doesn't go away. He doesn't give up. He doesn't leave us. He says, let's go. He'll leave the 99 for that one. That's our God. We've been singing about our God. So if you've been pinned, let's get up off the mat, call upon the name of the Lord, and he will get you going again. There is victory in Jesus Christ. He's already won the victory. That victory belongs to you. And so, Lord willing, as we go through some more of this passage, we'll be learning how, how to take the victory God has given to us. But now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to ask you to stop and examine yourselves. Where have you been pinned? Where do you need to ask God's forgiveness, God's help, God's strength? God is all gracious. Remember, there's no wrath, no anger that God has against you now in Christ. There's grace, there's mercy, there's favor. So take some time, go before the Lord and say, Lord, it's time to take the Lord's Supper and, and I want to take it the right way. 
If there's something you need to confess, do it now. Ask God's forgiveness. If something needs to change, then tell the Lord, I know this has got to change. Help me to do it. And let's come to the Lord's table. Remember, the bread symbolizes his nourishing us, and the cup symbolizes his shedding of his blood, but also to nourish us. It's the spiritual meal that we take. And spiritually, as we trust him, he feeds, he nourishes, he strengthens us. So let's draw near to the Lord, and he promises he will draw near to us. So take a few moments. Let's get before the Lord and seek his face.